All right, let's get started this morning. We've got to move through some questions pretty quickly, so please know that if you don't have a full or even satisfactory answer, that is fine. We can continue the conversation. Uh, you can talk to these folks or any of the other folks um, that you see in the congregation that have done this parenting thing for a while, uh, but we want to at least try to address briefly a couple of the questions that remain, and then, uh, Lord willing, two weeks from now, we'll, we'll begin, uh, I don't know if we'll tackle it on one Sunday or not, that biblical foundations for answering that question, uh, do babies go to heaven when they die? We are going to dive right into uh, this question. At what age is a child defiant, and what actions reveal the self? All right. At what age is a child defiant? What actions reveal the self? What do you have for us, panel of wisdom? Uh, I would say extremely early. Um, An example would be, you know, a crawling baby will look back at a parent. Uh, They're attracted by all the little lights and buttons and everything on your electronics at home. And you tell them no, and they leave it alone until they notice you're not looking any longer. And then they're going to start playing with it. And then they've messed up your sound system or your television set or something. But they know enough to do this. And they they show their defiance that way at a very early age. Um, They play Eve to God's command. We all do. We play Eve to God's command not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They do that with various things in your home, electrical outlets. Uh, They just want their own way. They're willing to act out physically or deceptively to get it in opposition to authority. Uh, That's true of every one of us. Agreed. Um, and I, I was, uh, Psalm 58.3 says, the wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. So I think they're, yeah, they're pretty quickly moving forward. And, you know, you've got this little baby who's hungry and cries. But if you don't meet that need pretty quickly, that cry of hunger turns and it becomes a cry of anger. They're mad. I wanted it now and it's not here. So... I think, you know, even that little bit of defiance you can see. Um, So, you know, our society is pretty humanistic and wants to believe that everybody's good. And uh, these little children are innocent little angels. Um, There is some innocence there, but I wouldn't use the term angel um, to describe them. So, I mean, I think we need to make sure we're providing for their needs, but we also need to be aware that, you know, they, they easily show defiance pretty quickly. So. It's really two questions. <clears throat> what age is a child defiant? Well, in sin, my mother conceived me, David says. So we inherit the sin nature uh, when we become a being. The other part of the question, what actions reveal the self? Yes, you might not see that defiance in an infant on its back all the time, but obviously as they grow, they they pretty quickly learned to communicate with you, and probably the first word many of us learned was what? No. Um, They know exactly what it means, and they'll use it to put you in your place. Now, we can be enlightened by modern psychology here. Um, Have you heard of O 
DD, oppositional defiant disorder. And this explains all of the bad behavior. It's defined as a pattern of angry or irritable mood. Vindictiveness lasting at least six months, evidenced by four symptoms from the following list. Often loses temper, is often touchy or easily annoyed, argues with authority, defies or refuses to comply with requests from authority or rules, deliberately annoys others. Well, the world says if you're generally irritable or often touchy, you might have ODD, oppositional defiant disorder. So maybe we should go easy on our children when they don't like our rules. They might be suffering from ODD. Uh, and the next time you don't want to do what your boss tells you, say, listen, I, I'd love to, but I've got ODD. Uh, and just see how that goes over. Next speeding ticket, whatever it is, uh, you could realize that you, there's a label for this. Uh, well, obviously, the theological label is original sin, uh, not as in the first sin, but in how that first sin affected all mankind. Romans 5.12, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me, Psalm 51. Ephesians 2 uh, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Jeremiah 17.9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? So children are born defiant, and they demonstrate very early uh, that defiance. And so be ready. Uh, God's asked you to stand in that gap and give them God's truth. All right, question. If God is sovereign, why parent well? If God is sovereign, why parent well? And I would say that this question applies to really all our efforts at holy living, and most often it surfaces in the context of prayer. If God is sovereign, why, why do we pray? Um, if God is sovereign, why do we do a lot of the things that we do that we call sanctification, spiritual disciplines, walking in the Spirit? Why do we do anything at all if God is sovereign? So the bigger question than just parenting, um, but it does help us to think through um, our place under this sovereignty of God. So any, any responses there? My, my response was very similar to yours. I, I thought... Um, you know, like the Lord did so many times answer a question with a question, uh, why do anything God instructs that's hard or inconvenient? Why worship? Why give of your time or your money to anything that's good, uh, especially the church? Why pray? Um, and the answer that I came up with to all those questions is because God is worthy of our, of our loving obedience, and it comes down to one word, and that being worship. Uh, we show God's worthiness by our obedience to teach our children and by doing so, we worship him. We show his worth, his worthiness, and um, our submission to him. Yeah. I'm in a good seat. I agree with that also. Good. <laughs> um, and I would just add, um, I, I totally agree with that. Um, 
you know, to, to, to say I don't need to do anything because God is sovereign is basically a form of fatalism, just, you know, we'll let what happens happens. But God in his sovereignty gave us his word, put parents in authority over their children. This was part of his sovereign plan. So in his sovereignty, he set up this structure and in his sovereignty, he expects us to to carry through with the roles he's given us. So it isn't like, well, God is sovereign, so I don't have to do anything. No, God is sovereign. He told me in his word that I, as a parent, need to do these things for my children, so I need to do them well, because that's what I've been instructed to do. Let me ask you a question. Whether it's prayer or parenting, do our actions or prayers change the purpose of God? The answer is absolutely not. Nothing we do in obedience or in prayer changes the purpose of God. But borrowing from, I think, R.C. Sproul in a lecture I'd heard once, um, then we should ask the question, do our actions or prayers change something? And the answer then is, absolutely. Um, And the way it works out, at least to start wrapping our minds around it, is to remember that God ordains the ends... And so the prophet tells us he knows the end, even though we're back at the beginning, because he's ordained it all. So, of course, he knows the ends from the beginning, but he ordains the ends as well as the means. So we get lost in trying to figure out, well, what what is the purpose of God? And if he's sovereign, why does it matter what I do when the reality is, no, you're missing the point. Yes, God is sovereign to ordain all things, but all things includes how his purpose is accomplished. And so by recognizing that, we understand immediately the sovereign God has ordained all things, but the sovereign God has ordained my praying to accomplish the purpose that he has intended. And so we just lose ourselves in this swell of God's sovereignty. It's his purpose is marching on and we just yield ourselves to that. And by faith, realize that he uses us to accomplish his purposes. Uh, Mordecai says to Esther in chapter 4, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise from the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Mordecai knew one thing. He kind of knew the end based on God's promise to Israel. The Jews are going to withstand this. They're going to survive. The only question is, are you going to yield to being part of the means that God uses to spare his people? He's going to do it. He's going to do what he's going to do with your kids. The only question is, are you going to be obedient to him in being the parent God wants you to be? In philosophical terms, we could think of God as the primary cause of all things, of all actions that we carry out, uh, all forces of nature. God's the primary cause. When a tornado rips through, you know, the Midwest, the primary cause is the God who ordains all things to work according to the counsel of his will. But then there's the secondary causes that God has created and designed and uses and uses them to accomplish his will. So if we really believe God is sovereign, then we'll just obey what that sovereign God says. 
Your mind doesn't have to understand it. You don't have to figure out how human responsibility and sovereignty go together. But if you're going to believe what's really clear in the Bible, that God is sovereign, then you just do what he says. Uh, it's silly to debate sovereignty and really we're saying, am I really going to bow my knee to that king or not? I mean, I know he's the king. He's sovereign. My theology is solid. But your actions don't support it. Just, just bow. Just do what he says. So if you can't figure out sovereignty of God and your role as a parent, then just step out in faith. Uh, God might help you to understand it more, but just believe what he says. And what he says is bring up those children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Question. How to parent in an unequally yoked household? And there's a lot of scenarios. One kind of unfolded here. Um, A husband may not follow Christ. The wife does. And that leaves her to be trying to teach the children the Christian faith. And and you can imagine the scenario then, uh, a wife trying to curtail some of the worldly influences, television, language that's used in the home, things like that. What do you do if the husband then thinks she's being too strict or trying to cram that stuff down their throat or clearly just on a different page? Um, how to parent in an unequally yoked household. Which I don't think, I, you know, many of you here may have grown up in a home like that. Uh, you may know of homes, you may be in one. So I don't think, you know, this is a, an outlandish question, like a rare scenario. This is the reality and I think finds a lot of um, support even in Scripture. So... My thought on this was you're trying to, to find yourself in a place of influence. Um, so to, do, to, to deal in a situation like that, I think you have to deal very gently with a husband so as to avoid him feeling like you're trying to usurp his authority. Uh, you want to you find yourself being his greatest counselor, not his greatest opposition. And so you, you do it in such a way, if you'll forgive me, to preserve his ego so you don't end up his enemy. Um, if the wife truly does follow Christ, then the advice of 1 Peter 3, 1 through 4 is critical. Be subject to your own husband. Um, even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without the word by the conduct of the wife. That, that won't be the case if you're playing tug of war. It has to be in such a way that he feels that you're his supporter, his confidant, even in disagreement. Um, they... they can be one, it says, when they see your respectful and pure conduct, not your cantankerous conduct, not your stubborn obstinance, perhaps pride. Let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Um, So a wife must first reverence her husband. She'll gain much credibility with a gentle and quiet spirit if she's actually too strict or uptight, if she truly is too strict or uptight, and his perspective on this isn't just a lost one but an accurate one, um, she will not gain credibility <clears throat> either with her lost or her saved husband. I clearly didn't have personal experience with this, um, but I probably can think of two women I encountered over the course of my adult years 
who did this well in those circumstances. And while I wasn't privy to all the private conversations in the home, I can tell you what I didn't see. I didn't see secret conversations with the children of like, I know daddy is fine with this, but I'm not. Or things that would indicate an opposition to dad or a disrespect to dad. Um, so I too kind of thought First Peter 3, to me, those women lived out and exemplified the living your life in a way that shows you believe your God is big enough for this. Your God is big enough for the situation and your children. And going with what you know is true in scripture, which is that you shouldn't be deceptive behind your husband's back. You shouldn't be disrespectful. And I think it can lead to great, honest conversations between adults in a home, if there's any reasonableness there. Um, and I think it can lead to her having great influence. So, um, Yeah, I agree with a lot of that. So, um, or all of that, I shouldn't say. It sounds like I'm taking exception to something. Um, so... Uh, just a couple things to add. So um, to me, there's kind of two, two prongs to this. One is how the spouse responds to the other spouse, and one is how the spouse responds to the children. So you've kind of got two different things to think about. How, how do you respond to your unbelieving spouse, and how do you then respond to your children? So, And in this particular case, we were talking about a, a saved woman and an unsaved man. Um, I think from the aspect of looking at the, the 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 wife to the husband, I totally agree that, you know, First Peter three is is probably speaks to this the best. And I think a big factor that comes into this for the woman is fear. She's afraid of what's gonna happen to her children because of the influence of her husband. And and it's even addressed in First Peter 3 later on in um, verses 5 and 6. It says, For this is how the holy women who obeyed in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. So I think to trust the Lord that as you're trying to follow your husband as best you can, that he is going to help protect your children. And you're going to be there trying to protect them as well. But um, I think there's, a, there's that aspect of fear that requires a lot of faith on the part of the wife. And then thinking about the children, um, just um, my thought was that the children are going to learn the most by watching how you as the believing spouse are responding to your unbelieving spouse. So more so, I think, than the danger of, oh no, these influences that my spouse is allowing to come into the home are gonna ruin the children. I think what's really important is that the children see you responding correctly to your spouse, and that's gonna speak more to them than anything. So, so my thoughts. I think the other thing that I would maybe chime in is the fear can tend toward frustration, which then can tend toward anger. Mm -hmm. And just to remember, the Lord says that the anger of man never brings about the righteousness of God. And if you want to think about the righteousness of God, that's really what your, your heart is longing for to see in your family. You know, pure speech. You know, good things that you're watching if, or whatever. You just think about all the good things. That's what you're wanting 
but the fear and the frustration and maybe subsequently anger is causing you to respond, hoping in that response to bring about righteousness. But it doesn't. And it's just to, to have your faith solid that I don't have to be angry, that's give place for that to God. I don't need to be upset. Um, God will take care of this. Yeah, be encouraged. 2 Timothy 2, the saved through childbearing text there, uh, describes the, the character of moms and its value. You add to that Timothy's own testimony of his mother and grandmother, and you realize there, there's an incredible influence opportunity there. Now, we don't know whether Lois and Eunice, his mother and grandmother, faced opposition from his dad or not. Um, but at least we have that scenario that gives us hope. The mother's influence is strong. Uh, same in Second Timothy 2, or 1 Timothy 2. Um, and then you put that with 1 Peter 3, and you realize, okay, conduct is powerful. Uh, the Bible's not saying they're going to get saved just because, you know, you live right. Well, obviously, the Spirit's going to move, and God's grace and mercy will be evident. Um, but the words are there. They will be won without a word by your conduct. Uh, so your conduct is an incredible act of obedience and faith to God and a testimony to your husband and to the children. Um, and I do think that fear factor is, is the biggest battle. And, and the text is clear. Do not fear anything that is frightening. So pray for God to change your spouse, of course. Um, live a life before spouse and children uh, that honors the Lord, and then fight and struggle for the faith that battles fear and the desire to control um, because you're going to want to fix and do and protect and preserve and be in control when the whole question is kind of rooted in you feel out of control. And so recognize you're not and, and, and your battle of faith may be different than someone else's, but it is a battle for faith. Um, but take heart. Moms are highly esteemed in the New Testament. And you could go to Proverbs 31 and Old Testament examples uh, for their influence in the home. And so uh, let the Bible bolster you and to, to know you, you, have, you have more influence than you think. And... Um, and root your faith in the Word of God. And as you give that to your children, you know, you're fearing the influence of what they're watching and hearing and kids at school. And stack all that up against God and His Word. And see what the Bible says about who's going to prevail there. Uh, so take heart. Uh, that's a hard, hard place to be. Um, but the Bible is trying to, to give us the support we need. Question, should I have my children pray even before they are regenerate? Or we could say before we maybe know or see clearly that they are regenerate. Should I have my children pray even before they are regenerate? Absolutely. Um, I think that's part of the training process of prostrating ourselves before the Father so that they will learn to love, reverence, adore, and obey Him. Um, <clears throat> It creates a habit in them that plays a part in God's plan of salvation. 
And it puts them in a place of acknowledging that God is our authority even before conversion. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, as an example, you know, similarly, we had our children memorize uh, the Shorter Catechism. So, and they're three, four years old saying these words. They have no idea what they're saying, right? Um, but at some point, this is going to be in their mind. And when they get to be older, they're going to, oh, I, now I understand what that was. And in the same way, I think initially when they're praying as young children, they're not necessarily understanding anything. We're developing a pattern. And as they grow older, that can go into their heart. And, and even doing a, a rote pattern of praying, God can use that to, to awaken their heart. So I think it's a good thing. Yeah, I think we can kind of spin ourselves into a tizzy here, you know, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. So we think, well, if they're a sinner, God won't hear their prayer. Well, it's not like as stark as that because God is all through the scriptures calling sinners to cry out to him, like to return to him, to repent. Um, so don't, don't overcomplicate this. Um, come back to Jesus' words, you know, to his disciples that were shooing the kids away. And, you know, let them come. And this is what the kingdom of God is, is about. So um, you don't know when childlike faith's going to kick in. Uh, God calls sinners to call to him. We're putting truth into their heads. It communicates God's bigness to them. Uh, just as they'll call out to you in the middle of the night for help when they're scared or when they fall on the, off the swing set in the backyard or when they're hungry, they're asking you, we're helping them understand there is a Heavenly Father with every hope and prayer that they will one day trust Him fully. Uh, Psalm 34:11 says, Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. So I think in teaching the fear of the Lord to recognize that we can communicate with this God who made us, whether or not we know if childlike faith, saving faith is there, I think it's right for us to communicate, this is God, uh, and we are accountable to him. And yet, for all their lives, they will know from their childhood that that God was someone we were pointing them to as their great hope for salvation. Uh, at some age or level of understanding, uh, it may not be wise to make your child pray. You know, I start thinking, you know, if you clearly had a teenager, uh, a young adult who is not a believer, you know, I, I don't, I think at some point you'd, you'd be thinking through some other principles there of where they stand before the Lord and how to help them see that. But uh, that childlike condition is, there's a lot there in the scriptures. We'll look at this even in our reckoning with children going to heaven. Um, so just camp out there in the childlike faith and your role to nurture and admonish, and let that be sufficient for having your children pray as little ones. Uh, question. How to handle slash talk about slash teach on the topic of sexuality, feelings, desires, in a way where they don't rebel and go act out on these things because you have made it such a thing that you ignore and don't talk about. 
what age do you start talking about this? So generally, how do, how do we talk about sexuality, especially in our culture, um, and at what age do you start talking about this? Too, too much to cover there. Um, I, I, gave, I gave kind of a, <clears throat> excuse me, I, I, I put some thoughts down, but there's just, this is like a Sunday school series. Um, I think it requires first and foremost that you know where your child is emotionally on a day-to-day basis because all their lives they have little or no interest in the opposite sex until the day they do. And you need to be, you need to know where they are emotionally so that you can be primed and ready to go at, at that point in time. Um, when, when that happens, of course, then it's all they think about. And you want to get ahead of the world as the established authority in matters of sex. Um, I think their parents, I think seeing their parents being uniquely touchy, physically touchy, uh, with one another in ways they see clearly or not with other people establishes a more caught than taught kind of scenario. It lays a foundation when they understand that mommy and daddy are, are um, uh, you know, if they touch each other in ways that, that others don't. And I don't mean inappropriate necessarily. Some of you may find what follows a little offensive, and so I'll try to be gentle. But... Um, after that, I think conversations about how mom and dad are in, a, in an exclusive relationship with one another, uh, sensitivity at their age and maturity, of course, uh, but those kinds of conversations can further lead to what kind of a person they're attracted to, uh, what they want their marriage to be like one day, and how, <clears throat> how they want to be perceived, perceived by peers and so forth. I remember Laura very cunningly um, asking our son Daniel, uh, do you think that girl is pretty? Um, and just drawing him out, just kind of getting a sense of, of what he was attracted to. Blondes, brunettes, redheads, tall, short, skinny, th- thicker, whatever. And, and she just drew him out, and that opened a lot of doors for conversation. Um, if mom and dad are not physically touchy, or mom always smacks dad's hands away, they're going to grow up with a view of the limitations of sexuality and marriage where the world will want them to see a liberated view. Um, That is, to me, that's the crux of the matter. If they feel like there are no shackles outside of God's way and only shackles inside of God's way, they're going to be attracted to the world's way of doing things. Frankly, my parents didn't do that. So I was, frankly, very attracted to the world's view of sex and viewed the Christian view as it is depicted in my home growing up as constricted and full of no, stop, and don't, where the world's view was very attractive because there were no limitations. Um, That's not to say there aren't limitations, but I think Christians have fallen prey to an idea that this is a big secret we don't talk about. And I don't think God viewed it that way. When you read the scripture, you don't find it that way. Uh, we've talked about some things in previous Sunday schools that would be very clear about that. Yeah. I, to add to that, I think um, I wanted the children to, to see that this relationship was, as he said, like nothing else. It wasn't like the relationship I had with our friends or our neighbors. It was uniquely different because God gifted it that way and it was good. So just like you want 
your children, there's a lot of discussion about this today. You want your children to grow up with a happy relationship and a good, healthy relationship with food or money. You recognize that God gave this great gift of food, and, and he gave us clearly, most of us, much more than we need to survive shelter-wise. And if you, if you take this restrictive approach, like you can't enjoy it, it's sinful to enjoy it, or we shouldn't talk about it or whatever, then it's not living and enjoying God's beautiful gifts the way he designed them. And so I think my, my thought was generally, this is just like many other things, one of the fantastic, beautiful gifts God gave. And we live it out on a daily basis in the way we intimately connect with each other and in front of the children. Age appropriate, of course. We always try to be age appropriate, but as they grow, it they are knowledgeable. And we help them become even more knowledgeable. And so I think living out that intimacy um, and connection with them showed them that when you do it God's way in marriage, that this is a beautiful gift to be enjoyed. Um, so I think that was kind of probably in our forefront of our mind. And um, uh, we used um, kind of scripture to help us get into the topic. So we would read through um, Genesis fairly frequently. And if you read through Genesis, there's a lot about sexuality happening in that book. Um, and, and it's right there. It is, nothing's being hidden from you. There, and there's all kinds of deviation going on in there and everything else. And it provides a perfect opportunity to explain what, what's happening, why is it wrong, what should be happening, um, what, what are appropriate feelings, uh, you know, when is it not appropriate. There's, there's, there's just a lot of room for, for discussion there. Um, and obviously, like as was mentioned before, it, depends on how old they are as to how much detail you get into some of that, but um, that definitely can provide a great springboard into talking about something that can otherwise seem very uh, awkward. Well, I just would add, just when it, the question was how soon, I think just as soon as you are reading any book to them, you're reading the Bible. So if you're reading Genesis, you're, you're laying the first layer of hearing, this is what God thinks about this. You don't have to discuss it. I don't have to discuss how ducks float when I'm reading books about ducks. I just read it. I just read what the Bible says, what the deviations were, and God's very severe judgment. And we just read it. And then the next year we read it again. And it's just in there, and you're doing a little line upon line, here a little, they're a little, precept upon precept. And it's not a sudden sit down and we have to talk about this. It's part of the foundation of what you've built is a little bit here, but it's all based in the word. You're not coming up with a movie watching night of horrible things and then now we've got to sit and talk about it. You've brought the word of God in. Between the book of Genesis and Judges, there's plenty to talk about. Yeah, somewhere along your way, your kid's going to see that Adam knew his wife or Isaac knew his wife, and their thought's going to be, well, of course he did. And we, you know, they know who she is, and you'll have plenty of opportunities to re- help walk them through what exactly that means. Uh, let me give you three key words here. One, 
Um, if you're going to talk about this, do it intentionally. So have a, have a plan, not, oh, uh, oh, you heard what? Well, um, yeah, let me tell you about, because now, now you just took a back seat to whatever other source there is. Like they knew, now they realize, oh, you knew this and didn't tell me. Okay, so I know where to go to get my information. Like you don't want to be the fix and repair kind of guy. Be intentional. Um, second, be positive. So there's intentionality and, uh, and then there has to be this positive uh, presentation. Uh, it's God's good design. We were created in God's image, and specifically maleness and femaleness. And then God designed that for this intent of marriage. And so have this positive God-designed kind of stamp on what you're saying. Um, This is like, stereotypically, this is this awkward thing for parents to have to tell their kids about. And the reality is you're you're just kind of the middleman. Like, you're just saying, this is what God made. Um, so take the pressure off you and put it right there on the word. Uh, God's revealed it, and he takes credit for this. This isn't something you, you know, have to justify or explain. You're just telling your kids what God has designed and called it very good. Uh, yes, the Bible, uh, the understanding of sin will help us understand how it deviates from God's good plan. But if, if sexuality can be linked in your kid's mind with your common phrase of God's good design, you will have done a good job. Um, so be as positive as the Bible is about this uh, in Old and New Testaments. And then uh, to Don's point, I think we need to be incremental in our presentation. Uh, one of the books I'll pull out uh, a couple weeks from now, I put a bunch out on the table for you to look through. Uh, a couple of them, I think, help explain this. And they make the point that some, your, your five-year-old might ask you a question. Uh, where, do children, where do kids come from? And you panic and think, how am I going to explain all this? And they literally were thinking like they heard something about somebody at the hospital. And they're thinking like... Do they come from that building or something? Uh, they might not be asking what you think they are at a certain age even. And you just, you just kind of give them basic understanding. And as Don said, you just build those layers. And as they grow, uh, a little bit more and a little bit more understanding. And, and that'll help, as Dennis said, to kind of know your children and to be having conversations so that you can kind of tell if there's something that they've heard or they're just curious about or they're trying to figure it out. Uh, But that incremental approach is helpful so that it's not all at once and you're trying to find the perfect time. Because that's often what you hear about. You know, you have to take this camping trip or you have to take a long car ride or you have to watch some video series. And it's like, I don't know that you need to give them the fire hydrant all at once. Um, You just start with the basic like things that hardly explain anything. There's no awkwardness there. Uh, and and it, just, it just grows and it builds. And, and as Don and Clark said, if you're in the Word, you're going to certainly come across things that will always be putting the blessing or curse 
rightful weights on this conversation of sexuality because it's not just birds and bees. It's not just biology. It's, it's God's blessing or God's curse that's going to fall on this behavior. Um, and God's strong against all sin, of course, but he, you know, it's really stark in its uh, um, warnings about our sexual misbehavior, our sexual sin. So be intentional, be positive, be incremental. Uh, and, and again, battle against fear, because I know that, that'll creep in. Uh, did I say it wrong? Did I say enough? Am I starting too soon? Have they already heard something? Well, what if they have? What if I found out, you know, my kids already looked at pornography? And there's all kinds of fear that can come in. Just remember, we, we, we have God's word. So come back to it and use it well. Uh, any questions there? Maybe there are questions. Yeah, Roy? I don't know if it's a question, but I thought I heard from that question shades of some of the sexual weirdities of our current age because when we may be comfortable with this and understand this is the way it's been done for a very long time, there are some forces now that are recruiting to a very deviant lifestyle and have identified kids who are very wounded and ready for something so odd that it's destructive. Yes, I mean, there again, it, uh, we, we can maybe tend to think like, what is our world coming to? Well, it's not coming to anything. It's always been this. You know, you don't know the Roman Empire, if you think America has really gotten bad, no, we got a long way to go. Um, the world has always been bad. So there's nothing we're seeing today that is new or this is as bad as it's ever been or how do we raise kids in this generation. Um, we're still left with what God has said and we're going to believe it or not. And if we really believe it, we're going to want to show our kids this is the way, walk in it, um, and, yeah, with the wisdom of knowing it's a, it's a dangerous world because sin is destructive and the devil is intentional in his plan. So we'd better be equally as aggressive. Um, and if anything, if the world troubles you and what you see troubles you, then just realize, okay, the world's being very aggressive with what they think about sexuality. Are you, as a parent, being equally aggressive with God's good design. Uh, so stand in that gap. Uh, question, how to give the gospel with a call to repentance, but not lead kids to a profession, uh, instead trusting in the Holy Spirit. Uh, this might be something that a lot of young families have been thinking about. Uh, you've been reading Bible stories to your kids. They've been in Sunday school class. Um, most of you, if you're, if you're honest, could sit down with your child this afternoon and say, hey, do you believe in Jesus? Do you want to go to heaven? Well, here, pray this. And then you could post online, my child trusted the Lord, and, you know, oh, great news. And, and it may be true that that's what your child has done. But I know some are concerned uh, from having seen young people do that in an early age, and then in their, you know, teen years, they're thinking, I have no idea, I, I never did anything, I never trusted the Lord, and the parents are telling them, well, yes, you did, you were six when I led you in the prayer. 
So that's the, that's the scenario we're looking at. So how do we give the gospel in a call to repentance, which is completely biblical, yet not lead kids to uh, maybe a misunderstood profession? Uh, what do you, any thoughts? I mean, some of the thought answer is in the question, trusting the Holy Spirit instead. So whoever asked this, just know you're built, you, you were trying to frame your confusion, but you did it with God's wisdom and saying, we have the Holy Spirit to help us. So if there's any vagueness in any of the following answers, know that you can trust the Holy Spirit in this. Yeah, I, I do think, I was going to say, I think the question contains the answer. Uh, you give the gospel, you do show them their sin, you do call them to repentance for that sin, but I, I wouldn't give them you know, home-based altar calls. I wouldn't necessarily ask them for a decision for Christ. Um, I think much like we transitioned here at Grace from doing weekly altar calls after each service to just teaching the Word uh, and ending the service with letting the Word sink into hearts and letting people come to a decision based upon the Holy Spirit as the way to go. <clears throat> the apostles spoke uh, and left the hearers to decide whether they believed, but they didn't do invitations. Uh, that was a 19th century invention by a wolf in sheep's clothing named Charles Finney. And uh, as the spirit moves like the wind, scripture says, he will open their eyes in his time. Yeah, I would caution against fear too, because I did very much kind of wait with that anticipating moment when, anticipating the moment when the child would say, I want to get saved, and I just out of sheer fear that they wouldn't jump to it and was like, okay, let's do that. And, and I also knew at times looking back now that I didn't see real repentance, and I thought, yeah, but I remember I, I was there. And so don't be afraid. <laughs> I say sounding very fearful. Don't be afraid because... God is big enough for this, and he has the power to save your children. Yeah, I don't have really much to add. I don't think you need to feel like you need to be pressuring your child for a decision. Um, you just need to make sure they're continuing to hear the truth of man's sinfulness and, and what Christ has done, um, and, and let the Spirit work in their heart. Um, and, you know, if they have made a profession at some point, um, there are so many stories of people who made a profession as a child and then come back later and say, but I didn't, you know, it, it really wasn't until I was 18 that I really came to the Lord. So I, I wouldn't, as a parent, always be pointing back to it for your child, um, but allow the spirit to work in their heart and, you know, um, Leave it at that, I guess. I guess maybe the thought is let their testimony be their own. Yes. Um, you don't have to testify on their behalf. Let their little life changed be their own testimony and let their own little mouth speak more and more of how much they love Jesus and not you trying to come back and point to them. But I think the other thought is continually giving them the promises of the word of God. Jesus has said, let the little children come to me. He who comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. All the promises of the book are yes and amen. 
in Jesus, and they're for you. And you keep giving them the promises of God in Christ for salvation for all who believe. And yeah, you're not making altar calls at your house, but you are not downplaying at all the solid rock promises of salvation to our children. Preach. Mm. No, don't, actually. (laughs) No, I think it'll help to um, really wrestle with, with biblical language, like use the Bible's promises and words. If we we try to dumb it down to, do you want to go to heaven? Sure, sign me up. Can we go for ice cream too? Like, I'll do both. Um, you, can, you can lead them to any kind of commitment, um, but the real task is to, to point them to a savior because they're a sinner. So if you never talk about sin and a savior and you just talk about getting saved or going to heaven or trusting Jesus... Well, what are you trusting him for? They might even say, I'm trusting Jesus. Or they could come up to me. Hey, pastor, I trusted Jesus. Okay. Um, Like, we'd want to know what for, because the great need is you're a sinner separated from God, and you need someone to rescue you from that sin and judgment. Um, So if you're giving them Bible language about their need and God's provision for it, then... It won't matter if you know exactly when they rested fully on Jesus as the provision for their salvation. Um, It just can't be about you and your burden or your desire for your children or, you know, to know that they're safe. Um, You won't know that. And, And there's plenty of parents that have seen their kids saved and baptized at four years old, and it it didn't pan out the way they thought would be safe, and everything's fixed now. So we live by faith, and the faith has to be in God's Word. So figure out what the Word says about how God saves, and make sure you're communicating that to your little ones. You had a question or comment? Yeah, I was just going to say, I think that um, there's also, like, when kids are older, um, there's also like an inherent goodness if they're looking from the outside in that is really relevant to a Christian family, a Christian person, that you can like visibly and practically see. Um, even unbelievers see it, I think, just like if they see our family go out to eat or something, they, they just, they'll smile or they'll even see the adoration in their face. Um, and you can feel it in a Christian household that's very practical and good and loving and treating people upright and vulnerable and things like that. So I think that that's also like a really attractive thing even for unbelievers to see that as well. Yeah, you've probably been in that situation where you're out to eat or you're at the store and you have your kids and they're behaving well and there's that cloud of goodness and people will see like something's different. The flip side of that now is in addressing this question, there's this danger that your kid will be in that cloud of goodness and they'll be raised that way. And you have to be careful that you're leaning on the word still and and the grace of God to save because they can grow up kind of being good uh, and looking good. And you might not know until those 
teen years, when they're more independent and making choices clearly on their own, whether or not there is really that fruit of repentance and faith. Um, and it won't be as much a question of, well, did you repent and believe when you were six years old? It will be as, you know, Luther put in his first of his 95 theses, are you living a life of repentance? Are you repenting? Are you believing? It's a present question, not just when did you do that? Uh, it's not so much looking back that gives us our confidence. It's looking around. Is there that fruit of repenting and believing now? Um, so it's a big question. We, it's hard to exhaust here, but as you're wrestling with that, let's just keep talking that through. This, the scriptures can help us here. And perhaps the greatest help to you as the parent will be Jonah's message. Salvation is of the Lord. It's not up to you to save your kid. Uh, we're doing a parenting little shot in the arm here to remind you, you've got a lot of work to do to obey Ephesians 6, but salvation is of the Lord. Um, and that will be a great foundation for you in answering this question because it's not on you. Um, so take heart. The scriptures have addressed a lot of these issues and more uh, when it comes to our parenting. Uh, when these kind of questions come up in your mind, try to start uh, with scripture. Is there any verse that I could really lean into here for shaping an answer? Um, some of you probably were thinking some of the answers you heard here. Uh, and that's good. That be, we can all do that. Uh, nobody's more entitled to the word than anyone else. Uh, so wrestle with your questions. Take them to the Lord uh, and see how his word proves true for us. Uh, we'll tackle that last question in the coming weeks. Uh, let's thank the Lord for the hope that is ours in Christ. Lord, we... Rejoice in your kindness to us through Jesus, demonstrating your love to us while we were yet sinners so that Christ dies for us. Uh, thank you for the Spirit of God that blew into our lives and called dry bones to come alive. Uh, we rejoice in life in Christ. And we long for that, for the uh, unbelieving family members, maybe even our own children, um, co-workers, neighbors, uh, give us a confidence, uh, a prophetic, apostolic, just a Christian confidence that uh, you are still saving, that you are long-suffering and drawing men to yourself. Um, and so encourage us, even in our parenting, uh, as we stand in the gap, maybe be aware of our adversary, the devil, who hates our uh, our families, who hates our marriages, who, who hates you, our God. Um, and just to know that we're in that spiritual battle and that we cannot rely on carnal weapons, but we must have uh, the truly spiritual weapons that are ours. Uh, we rest uh, our faith and our parenting responsibility in Jesus and his righteousness, uh, thanking you for him and it. In his name we pray. Amen.